on the ironic charge of atheism in 155 AD, Polycarp, that was his name, the Bishop of Smyrna, was hounded by Roman guards and brought before ironic Herod, uh, the local ruler at the stadium in Smyrna, this town that we've, uh, the city we just heard of. The charge was atheism because uh, he had denied Caesar, rule of Rome, he denied Caesar as Lord. The sentence was death either by mutilation by wild animals um, or by being burnt alive, usually after being tortured by being placed on a bed of spikes and trodden on by the Roman uh, soldiers. Polycarp is an old man, age 86 at this point, and was a respected man, was pleaded with, uh, by, um, was pleaded with in private by Herod. And he was asked to deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour publicly. And he had to say, no, Caesar is Lord. And the, the thing that they always wanted them to say was away with the atheists referring there to the Christians Polycarp though could not say such a thing rather he shouted hear me declare with boldness I am a Christian he then proceeded to try and tell the Roman guards all about Jesus Christ which didn't make Herod too pleased um, now the stadium wild beasts were threatened and, uh, but nothing Nothing at all could scare this great man, Polycarp, into denying Christ. And lastly, he was threatened with being burnt alive. And as bold as ever, listen to his response. Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But thou art ignorant of a fire of coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Bring forth what thou wilt. After that, Eusebius' history, which I've just quoted from there, gets a little bit kind of folklore and we're not totally sure of the accuracy. Um, but despite this, we see a man in that account that's so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that he was willing to forgo his life in order to not forsake Jesus Christ. Now, uh, this should provide, I guess, a bit of local, a bit of political context uh, to the, the letter that we've just heard read in Revelation 2, to this place, this church in Smyrna. Christians in Smyrna were slanderously being accused daily of being atheists. They faced death, they faced rape, they faced pillage every day. The letter to Smyrna caused people in these dire circumstances to remain Faithful. If you remember last week, we looked at the letter in the church to Ephesus. Now that is all about uh, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for Christ. The call of Jesus was to rekindle that love which they first had when they first trusted in Jesus' death on the cross for their sins in their place. And the challenge was to continue good works, but now in loving gratitude to what Jesus had done on the cross, rather than out of duty. And uh, in each of these letters there's a challenge specific for the circumstances and specific for the recipient church. But they are here now so that we might learn from them. And they're challenging, aren't they? Uh, the structure of, this, uh, of all of the letters is identical. And each end with that phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And basically he's saying, whatever we're reading now, however many years it is old, it applies to us right now, because the Spirit's here to work through these words into our hearts. Churches is plural and has future meaning. Therefore it's for us corporately, but it's for us individually too. 
Let's have a look at this letter then to, to Smyrna. Just a bit of geography. Smyrna lay about 60 kilometres north of um, Ephesus. Population of about 250,000 at this point. It was a large urban dwelling and a port city that kind of fought with Ephesus to be the, the first city in what was then known as Asia Minor, now known as Turkey. Uh, it was known as the glory of Asia, for it was a very well-planned city. Uh, after being destroyed in 580 BC, the, the city was rebuilt in 290 BC. But according to very strict Roman kind of planning, uh, everything had its place. Nothing was left to chance. It was very ordered. It was kind of an, an ancient world Milton Keynes, if you know what I mean. Many writers of the time wrote that Smyrna, Smyrna was a beautiful city. Yeah, but such was its beauty that it was one of the, the first cities to be allowed to have a temple to Rome in it, the worship of the Roman Emperor. And even in 195 BC, there was a temple to the goddess of Rome situated in Smyrna. And it's to Christians in this beautiful, ordered, but very secular city that this letter here that we're reading was sent. Let's look at verse 8. To the angel. Again, apocalyptic language. I mentioned this last week. Angel, leader of the church in Smyrna, write. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Now, I've put on our little outline there. It's, it, these are basically the words of Jesus. Um, as we saw last week. It's easy to think, isn't it, that each of these letters uh, begins with kind of random, oh, I'll pick a little description of Jesus from Revelation chapter 1, and I'll plonk it in the introduction to say it's from Jesus. But each has carefully been selected, as we'll see. And once again, we do need to be reminded that it is Jesus speaking. Yes, John's the writer of the letter, inspired, given words by Jesus. Jesus is, if you like, the deliverer of this message. And it's him whose character uh, we need to understand, to take comfort in and encouragement from um, as we read the message that follows. Now you see that little phrase he uses, the first and last. Do you see that there? It's an introduction of, um, that Christ uses of, him, of himself to demonstrate what he's saying. I've got divine control. I am sovereign. I am first and last. Sovereign over history because he is the one who alone has the attribute of eternity. Now, this is demonstrated in his defeat of death, isn't it? And his rising to new life. And if you don't believe that is an historical event, I do encourage you to go to the British Museum. There's so much evidence up there from not only Christians, but many opposers too. Um, this is also a useful rhetorical parallel. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that. The, the city of Smyrna had, if you like, uh, died. It had been sacked in 500 BC and then later risen, rebuilt to 90 BC. Um, but it is Jesus, the eternal sovereign, that, uh, that becomes the prominent theme. Now keep that at the back of your mind. Write it down. Jesus is sovereign because it will help us as the, the letter goes on. So as always, after the introduction of his character, Jesus shows that he knows, he perceives the true condition of this church now in Smyrna. Look at that, verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I put that at point one on your outlines. Just I know your troubles, just generally. Do you remember Polycarp? As I introduced... The great Polycarp. He was Bishop of Smyrna up until his death in 155 AD. And this letter is dated, we think, about 95 AD. 
Um, the situation you heard in the story of Polycarp, it, well, things hadn't changed too much in, in that period of time. This is the similar situation that these people are facing every day. The troubles that the church in Smyrna faced were threefold, it seems. Firstly, we see it says they were afflicted there in verse 9. Um, the afflictions, uh, the definition of that word is pretty much, it can be both psychological, but it also is physical, as we've seen with Polycarp. Certainly the pressure to conform to society in the worship of Caesar would have been very, very oppressive. But also the constant barracking from the, Ro- from the Romans and supporters uh, of Rome would have been very tiring to live amongst. It was known in other cities that Christians were beaten and raped and pillaged continually by Jews and secular Romans. And the authorities just turned a blind eye. Uh, because they were the atheists. They were the subculture. They were the minority, if you like. And they wouldn't worship Caesar, so anything was allowed. Their afflictions were severe, and as a result, so was their poverty, we see there in verse 9 as well. And you have to ask the question, how could such a group of people be so poor in such a wealthy city? Well, their poverty was extreme, and probably due to the pillaging of their goods by Jews and Romans as well. Christianity was not legal at this stage, so it literally, it was kind of a balancing of the scales of justice as it was viewed. If Christians are robbed, that's okay, they're being illegal. Um, can you imagine, I, I suppose, you know, you leave church here tonight, you, get, you go home and you find all your property's gone. And there's no comeback in the justice system at all. And it's just because you're a Christian, if you are. Their poverty may also have been due to their uh, denial of wa- wages. Uh, there's stuff in history to, to show us that's the case. Or, you know, lack of promotions. And I guess some of you, if you're Christians here, you've faced that as well. But despite such poverty, Jesus describes the church, look at it, it says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet, look at it says, verse 9, yet you are rich. It's in stark contrast uh, to the, the capitulation of the Laodicean church, which you'll see at the end of chapter 3, the sort of seventh letter. Um, the, the church in Smyrna had remained spiritually rich, that is, very distinct from the world. Uh, but, but Smyrna, unlike Laodicea, had demonstrated through their works a spiritual richness as well. In the midst of economic poverty, it's not unusual, is it, for Christians uh, to become more dependent on God. And this is why so many of us find it difficult to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because we have so many distractions that usually emanate from our wallets and all that that provides. Lastly then, you see that Jesus says, I know, he knows the slander that they face. So there's been afflictions, there's been poverty, but there's also slander there as well. It's linked with the afflictions and poverty, uh, but, but slander's there. It, it comes from a group that say there are Jews, but they're not, the end of verse 9. Rather, look how Jesus describes them, it's very severe. They're a synagogue of Satan. Now, synagogue is simply a gathering of Jewish people. Uh, but these Jews were, were of Satan, it's a very strong language. That is, they're, they're outwardly members of a, a racial group, an ethnic group. But inwardly, they, they know no transformation of learnings from the Torah in the Jewish religion. 
Now, I suppose, contextualise that here. We know people like that in our country, don't we? They, they go to church, but they, they know nothing of relationship with God. Nothing has taken impact in their lives. We see it all, all over the world, don't we? Where race and ethnicity gets confused with faith. And these so-called Jews uh, abuse the Christians, they're literally accusers and informants for the authorities. I suppose they're like the KGB of Smyrna, aren't they? Their motivation was, was a simple hatred, I suppose, of the, of the Christians and the Christian faith. They believed it, you see, a distortion of the Jewish law, a perverse way of salvation. They considered the worship of Jesus, who in their eyes is just a, a crucified criminal. They, they, they saw that as absolutely abhorrent. And they plotted and therefore they informed against. And they lied about and they stole from the Christians in Smyrna. And Jesus says, I know all of this. And look at it says. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Verse 10. Remember Jesus informed us at the beginning he was the first and the last. Well this is where it really hits home. Notice that Jesus knows the future. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. In the original it's more specific saying the things you are about to suffer. And this shows that Jesus uh, knows exactly what's going to happen to these people in the future. And he's saying to them guys, it might be tough, but it's okay. I am here and I know what you're about to go through. And what is to come is ascribed, again, pretty seriously in the language here, in verse 10, it's ascribed to the devil. I tell you, the devil will put, you in, put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Note the devil there. Though powerful, the devil is still under the sovereignty of God. Uh, and under his authority. Though he accuses and he prowls um, and he accu- um, and, and deceives us, He can do nothing apart from which God ordains. God remains sovereign. Jesus remains the first and the last. He has defeated the power of the devil on the cross, bound him, as Revelation tells us later. And so when Christ returns, he will finally render him useless and throw him into the abyss, as Revelation 20 tells us as well. Therefore, as Christians, though we recognise the devil is real... We do not fear him, though he is hard at work, because Jesus is in control. He's the sovereign one, the first and last, such as he uses the work of the devil just simply to test us, to bring about good in us, refinement. And we see here, the context of Smyrna, even through imprisonment. Do you see that? See, the reality for the church in Smyrna was suffering and terrible pain. And Jesus' words are for comfort in these horrific situations. But they are also assuring truth, aren't they? Once again, there comes a reminder that despite imprisonment, Jesus is the first and last. And therefore, he's in control. See, the test here that the the people in Smyrna will go through, the the Christians, is for the refinement of the one imprisoned, not for the unjust joy of the captor. And Jesus uses testing in all our lives so that we might turn to him more, whether we're Christians or not. That we might turn to him in dependence and love. The last expression of sovereignty in such adversity is the fact that Jesus says, it's interesting, he says, you only suffer for ten days. Do you notice that? How accurate he can be? The point here again is that he knows 
and he determines the end point of suffering. Now, ten days in in this context is a long time of suffering or of persecution. But even despite that length that the the Smyrna Christians would have heard, isn't it great comfort to know that there is a limit, an end, and that God is in control? Now scholars argue uh, quite a lot about this, whether that this, meant that this meant the prisoner was either released or that they were killed. Now, both scenarios probably occurred in reality. But you see the point remains the same, doesn't it? Yeah, whether you are released from jail or you, you die a yeah, pretty torturous death, at ten days, the time that God ordains... Either you will be back in your earthly home with your family and friends, or you'll be in your heavenly home face to face with Jesus. God is sovereign over all, is the point. If God is completely sovereign and Jesus' knowledge of the future assures us that is so, then what we come to at the end of this letter is that much more easy to stomach, isn't it? Jesus calls the church to Smyrna in the second half of verse 10, Be faithful. Yes, even to the point of death. And I will give you life. So third point, uh, briefly to finish. Be faithful to the end. Of course, faithfulness generally requires uh, love in the one you're being faithful to and hope in them too. And our faithfulness to God, of course, is the same. It relies on our love for God and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's achieved on the cross. And if you view Jesus as the crucified criminal, as the men did, described in verse 9, then, then we would have no reason to be faithful to God, would we? But if Jesus is Lord, King of all things, Saviour, the one who has saved us on the cross, saved us from the punishment that our sins deserve, then our love for him will be, on, will be beyond all worldly passions that we have. And therefore our faithfulness to, be, should, the faithfulness to him should be beyond all faithfulness that we know in our life. But uh, the problem is, well, I find, and I guess you will be with me on this, that our faithfulness to God is continually undermined, isn't it, by what we have around us and how we live our lives. Rather than cultivating our faith in God by reading his word and enjoying an intimate relationship with in prayer, then we kind of maintain our immaturity in our faith in God by dabbling with all sorts of things around us and anything we can get our materialistic and sex-mad minds toward, we kind of dabble in those things rather than cultivating our faith in God. And we render ourselves at that point open for attack, don't we? And when trouble comes, persecution in the context of Smyrna, we end up sinking like a scuttleship. Individually, of course, we are responsible, but it's a trend throughout society. C.S. Lewis, the great author of the last century, wrote this. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honour and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. And principally saying that, that, that as a society we lack drive to make anything of anyone. Uh, though we still expect an awful lot of individuals. We don't want to exert discipline in the schools or have a robust penal justice system because it's not politically correct. But we still expect really high standards of every single individual. How ridiculous C.S. Lewis is saying there. And God requires faithfulness. And he's saying here, even to the point of death. 
So what he's encouraging us implicitly here is saying, discipline yourself. And be disciplined to cultivate the faithfulness and love you have for Christ. Because one day it may be, it may be, tested to the point of death. So cultivate that faithfulness. Get your head stuck into his word. Feed on him by looking at the Bible. Pray to him. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? To the point of death. Certainly that's true for the church in Smyrna. We pray that it won't be true for any of us. Can you imagine me stood in front of a stadium and asked to deny Christ and call all Christians atheists? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine me stood there with probably twelve to 15,000 people shouting down at you? Put yourself there for a moment. What would you say? Would you deny Jesus Christ at that point? The fire has been set up behind you. The pyre. You've been stripped and you've been beaten and you've got a momentary chance to be set free. What are you going to do? I was thinking about this this week and I guess if I were there, like many of the historical accounts, I'd probably be crying my eyes out. I'd probably have wet myself and worse, as history tells us most did. But I'd like to think there'd be no way that at that point I would say away with the atheists. I don't want to think that I would deny Christ at that point. Oh, I guess they'd take me to the fire and burn me alive, but the pain would only last a while, wouldn't it? Faithfulness to the point of death, it's not stupid bravado. It's not senseless martyrdom as we see all around us in our world today. Because actually they'd have to catch me first and I'm quite quick at running. It's simple but strong and loving faithfulness to Christ. Why? Because look what he gives you at the end of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Notice it's God who does the giving again. I will give you... Uh, He is the sovereign one. Faithfulness results in a blessing from God. He knows our faithfulness. And though we may face all sorts of hardships, even death on this earth, his justice will be known and he will give to those of us who are faithful to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a gift. Look at it. The crown of life. I mean, death, and we all fear the pain of it, don't we, to some degree, is set in, in a kind of sharp antithesis to life here, isn't it? And actually the article is missing before life, and it should actually read, THE LIFE. Meaning eternal life. The crown, of course, is referring to the victor's wreath that would have been worn at the games uh, for winning a race. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is, if you're faithful to God, even if it means you die being faithful to God, because someone has died for you before on a cross... His death through faith will mean that you are victorious and that you will enjoy the life, both now and eternally. The context of faithfulness to the point of death puts our trials and our temptations and our struggles with money and power and relationships and material things, kind of puts it into context, doesn't it really? 
But what if we overcome our fears and our trials and temptations? Let's finish with verse 11. Look at it. He who has an ear, every time it says it, have you got one? If you have, listen. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. It always finishes to the one who overcomes. Are you going to be the one who overcomes? See, the first part of the sentence brings us all into the equation. You've got an ear, listen. But the second section excludes some of us, and I guess many of our friends too. For not all of us know what it is to be in relationship with God. That personal relationship. Yes, we might call ourselves Christians by virtue of being English or South African for some of you here. Um, you know, or we've got Christian parents, we go to church occasionally or whatever it may be. But we lack faithfulness that only comes from loving relationship. And it is only those people who will overcome. By implication therefore, the second death is described elsewhere in Revelation as an eternal judgment. Uh, it's completely just. We all deserve it, every single one of us here. And it sounds awful, and eternal, and painful. And I want to say to you, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Saviour and Lord, come and talk to me, please. It, it will be my utter pleasure to explain how you can avoid this. I don't speak in judgment, I speak in love, so that you might avoid the judgment. For those of us who know and love Jesus, cultivate your relationship with him. Don't entertain thoughts and actions that hinder your love and your faithfulness to him. For if we overcome, as this verse 11 says, we will not be hurt by judgment at all. uh, Because the punishment that we deserve will be placed on Jesus on the cross. Remember if you are suffering, and some of you are, whatever that may be, God is sovereign, you're okay, it won't last, and it will be for your good. I'm going to finish um, with just a, a brief little story, which I, know, I guess many of you will know, but I think it might be helpful. Two of my heroes, uh, my boys' heroes, I was telling them about them the other day, ended their lives being faithful, just like the guys in Smyrna. The scholar Nicholas Ridley and the influential printer uh, Hugh Latimer on October the 16th, 1555, were burnt at the stake in Oxford. Bloody Mary was queen at the time and she uh, killed 227 reformers as they were described. Men who were determined to preach the good news, the gospel, around this country. Let me read the account of their deaths to close and then I will question, I'll just ask a question and then I'll pray. Let me read this to you. With a loud voice, Ridley cried, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. But the wood was green, and burned only Ridley's lower parts, without touching his upper body. He was heard to repeatedly call out, Lord, have mercy upon me, I cannot burn. Let the fire come unto me, I cannot burn. One of the bystanders finally brought the flames to the top of the pyre to hasten Ridley's death. Latimer died much more quickly as the flames quickly rose. Latimer encouraged Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust never shall be put out. Well, that candle hasn't been put out. And let me question, in the light of those men, the Church of Smyrna, Bishop Polycarp. Will 
will be faithful even to the point of death. If we are, then we'll receive that victor's crown and Jesus' perfect life will be counted as ours at judgment and we will not be hurt by that second death. That's a moment of quiet uh, to pray and to consider that. And then if you'd like to turn to the inside of your um, sheets, you'll notice on the little tear-off part, there's something called the Apostles' Creed. This is something that uh, Polycarp was reputed to have said um, uh, later on, uh, just near the end of his uh, life. Not this original, this original form, it was formulated later, but words very much like it. So I thought it would be appropriate as a statement of our faith, if we believe it. In a moment we'll stand and say it together. If you believe it, please uh, say it with me and pray it with me. Just a moment of quiet to consider what we've heard and the words we're about to say.